From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you the Unconquered Podcast. As always, this show is brought to you by EPR Creations. EPR Creations partners with small businesses for website development and online strategy planning. They help me with showthesafeties.com. And if you haven't signed that uh, petition, you need to do so. And if you have any need for an improved internet presence or ways to improve your marketing, call EPR Creations. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered Podcast. All right, uh, we're going to go ahead and normally this would be an opportunity during the week where I would spend more time going back over the Syracuse game and maybe correcting or developing some of the stuff that I said in the postgame hot takes. But quite honestly, there's not a whole lot to talk about because when I went back over that game, I think I pretty much got it right on the hot takes this time. (laughs) There's not a whole lot to, to say other than one one thing, which is I actually, if anything, was not hard enough on the quarterback play. I thought going back and, and looking at it again, I thought Hornybrook played worse than I than I thought the first time through, partly because the majority of the success they had offensively in the passing game was on screen passes. And he did a decent job with those, but not a whole lot there. So the other thing, I guess there's one other thing uh, that, that I could I could bring up on that, and that is on looking at what they did with the wild cam type stuff, that direct snap stuff. I ultimately I, I've concluded and I, I thought this a couple weeks ago. I mean, I was saying maybe put Jordan Travis back there if you have to. You know what? <laughs> there, to me, there's there's going to be times again, and especially going and taking a look at what my what happened in the Miami Pitt game and what Pitt did to Miami, especially in the second half. Even though they lost that game, Pitt was able to bludgeon Miami in the running game when they went big, when they went big on the offensive line. So they actually put at one point seven offensive linemen out on the field and ran it down Miami's throat. That's how they scored late in the game. Now, Miami came back and they scored to go ahead after that, but that's what they did. If I'm Kendall Bryles and I'm looking at that, I'm thinking, hmm, (laughs) hmm, because Miami has has been vulnerable to some of that so far this year, more than you'd think, given some of the guys that they've got up front. And I'd be seriously considering, especially how much trouble you're bound to have against them in the pass protection game. I would be very seriously considering going more wild cam type stuff. And in some cases, not even having one of the other quarterbacks on the field. So you send your guys out there for the first play of a drive. Let's say that drive starts at the 35-yard line, and you send LeBourne and Akers out there with a, with a group of wide receivers, so they actually have to honor those receivers in ways that you don't with one of the other with one of the quarterbacks out there. Because Cam can get it out there to the edges, and he's capable of throwing some, you know, pushing the ball downfield on some verticals. I mean, he can throw the ball a long way. It's not real accurate necessarily on doing some of that. And you're not going to ask him to do a whole lot of throwing in terms of accurate windows or anything. I mean, this is not, he's not a quarterback, but in terms of maybe keeping that extra safety out of the box, because what I saw with Syracuse is they made some mistakes in terms of how they aligned against that. They weren't prepared for it. And there were times where they had a safety that was off the ball to Hornybrook's side. And he, there's no reason that he should have been back there because Hornybrook's no threat. All you have to do is keep somebody out there just to make sure that you can't just get free yards by tossing it out to an uncovered guy. But you got to keep somebody out there. But then other than that, you're, you're going to bring that safety into the box. And that's going to take away the numbers advantage by and large if Miami's able to do that. But if 
that's not Hornybrook. If that's actually one of the other guys that you actually have to worry about a little bit, then that that can retake the numbers a little bit. And maybe you go with a big personnel situation and, and put one of the receivers out wide and you go with six offensive linemen or you know, you go too big like they did in a couple cases with the two wingbacks and then both backs and see, see what happens with that. Especially with the, with the current offensive line situation where you've got a little bit more power in there. If you got Lucas and Minshew and Baselli and the freshman and Washington out there, you get a little bit more power on the field than what you've had in terms of just the ability to push guys around. So this is just me thinking about one of the things that I would do if I were Kendall Bryles. But, and, and I would toss it out there for maybe one drive and just see what happens if I don't even have a quarterback on the field and I'm trying to run it down their throat and let Cam make the read on, you know, if they, if they, if you've got a numbers mismatch out there, then throw it out on the screen. Otherwise make your read, run, run your veer, run your, your, your toss counter, or your toss, uh, power, uh, your toss to one side, backside power run your your quarterback zone, run your quarterback lead and ISO stuff. I That's something I would consider doing. And I'd, I'd look at doing that in more than just a Miami game. Because, you know, you're not getting a whole lot of quality play from the quarterback position right now. And quite frankly, you need to get better play in order to be, uh, in order to be sustainable long-term. And that might be a way to, to to do it just in the running game and maybe get a little bit in terms of the screen game and some of the other stuff they got. Cause if you're just throwing screens with Hornybrook, well, <laughs> yeah, think about that. So yeah, that's, that's one thing, but th- 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 those are the, those are the only real additional observations I have on top of what I said in the hot takes. I think the hot takes basically got the rest right and we can go ahead and move on to uh, Miami week and, uh, I think the rest of the show, I'm just going to address some some uh, questions that came in this week. I'm going to treat the rest of it basically as a mailbag and uh, and go from there. This will be a fairly short show. But um, before we move on, I want to thank second sponsor of the show. That's Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville. As I've said before, Louis is not just a realtor. He's a trained photographer and videographer. <laughs> Super important when 90% of home buyers search online first. You need to have a successful online marketing plan. He's the best in the business. Your house will never look better, including smooth professional walkthrough video. If you're in the greater Jacksonville area and you're thinking about listing your house, you need to give Lewis a call. Let him know you heard about him from the Unconquered Podcast. And if you're in the market to buy a home in the greater Jacksonville area, nobody's going to outwork Lewis. I mean, this guy was an assistant manager at Pickup Publix on Ocala and Tallahassee. You know those guys work hard and you know they they, they know customer service. He'll help you find the right house if you need that stuff done. You let him know you heard about him from the Unconquered Podcast. Help us all out. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and get to the mailbag. Just start with start with that. Number one, what is wrong with Juwan Williams? Is he in Coach Clement's doghouse? Is he still injured? Are you surprised to see Darius Washington play so much? Did you see this coming? Good questions. Number one, what's wrong with Juwan Williams? Um, well, I mean, the main things, uh, he's soft. He's not very strong. Uh he is somebody who struggles with confidence. Um, he's not as good as Washington at this point, <laughs> or not any better than Washington at this point. So that's why he's not playing. Pretty simple. And early in the season, you know, during camp and all that, he actually didn't look terrible. 
looked like a real ACC, not a, not a good one, but a real legitimate ACC offensive tackle. And then when he got hurt, well, that kind of all went down. And I mean, he wasn't playing great, but he was at least serviceable. And then, you know, hurt. And then you've got some of the, the other issues in terms of being soft and all of that. And, um, you know, when you've got a kid that's a, that's a true freshman that's starting to show that he can actually play that position and give you something there that the two upperclassmen aren't giving you, well, make the switch. As long as it's not going to ruin him, make the switch. Am I surprised to see Washington play so much at this stage? Yes. Yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> no, I did not see this coming. I did not see, and my sources, I, I didn't get anything on Washington in terms of all that uh, in, in camp. Uh, this was something that he developed over the course of the season, and he earned that time. And he wouldn't have been the first guy that I would have thought would have gotten that time. I thought Ira Henry would have been the first guy that might have been out there at offensive tackle based on what I saw in recruiting and all of that. I thought, you know, I thought Washington would be a good year two or year three, potentially right tackle. I did not think we'd see him at left tackle in year one. Now, long term, you don't want him being your left tackle. Long term, he's a right tackle. He doesn't move well enough to be a top-level left tackle, but he can be a really good right tackle. And he's played he played better against Syracuse than he did in the first game. You saw a nice jump in in quality, and those are good ends. I mean, he played against NFL ends against Syracuse, and he actually handled himself well. That's really, really encouraging. I mean, look, if that guy can be at one of your tackles next year and can actually play, and he can show some progress on what he what he showed against against Syracuse. You actually got a real tackle. Now you got to figure out who's going to be your left tackle, and you got potentially four guys that can actually play up front. In addition, once you find your left tackle, you might you might have five. And I still think Malcolm Lamar is your best case for your best opportunity for for a, a left tackle. And if anybody out there knows Malcolm Lamar, you need to get in that kid's ear because this is a business decision. That kid needs to switch to left tackle like next week. Because look, when when you're not one of the first guys that's going out there as a backup at defensive line right now, that tells you that you're not one of those elite guys. You're not keeping a Marvin Wilson from being on the field in, say, third quarter when you're up by 15, 18. Freshman year, Marvin Wilson's going to be out there. Durden, earning time right away. Malcolm Lamar? Well, he's he's gotten some garbage time stuff and he looks lumbering. He does not look like he moves like a defensive defensive tackle or defensive end. Certainly not like a defensive end. But he moves way better than just about any offensive tackle you're ever going to see. I mean, you're talking about a guy with plus movement and size and length for an NFL offensive tackle. All of those skills are there. And the thing about offensive tackle is it's not a you just look at Cameron Irving. You don't have to actually be at that position for years to learn to play it. If you're a good enough athlete and can, can play in space and move your, move your feet and you've got natural hands and, and can, and basically good balance, you can be taught to play that position. Well, as long as you're a physical guy and he's got all of the things that you would want, he could be, I'm telling you, that guy could be an NFL tackle. Somebody needs to get in his ear because that's a business decision. And then you've got potentially Lamar and Washington as your bookends and for a couple of years. 
So that could that could be a serious fix. And all of a sudden you're looking at having a, a viable offensive line before too long. So. Yeah. All right. Next question. James Blackman played well for a true freshman, played well against Louisville last year. Actually, that was NC State. Why isn't he progressing? Actually, I would say that he's not only not progressing, he's regressing. And I covered this a little bit earlier in the earlier in the year, but I, I only did it kind of glancingly, and I'm still hesitant to go too far into this. But my view on this is that Blackman came in as a very, very raw prospect. When I graded him coming out of high school, I said, basically, this is a guy that's going to need three years before he's really viable. And then he had to play as a first year guy. I mean, he was super raw and, and he and anybody around him is going to tell you, look, like the kid was actually like doing YouTube searches to try to learn how to play quarterback because he just didn't have the coaching. He, he was just a guy that, ha- that could throw the ball with some velocity and had some natural aptitude and talent, but didn't have the development behind him that, that most of these guys have coming in. And then he got in and he, he signed with Florida State when Jimbo Fisher was there. And say what you want about Jimbo Fisher, that guy can develop quarterbacks. And Fisher also is a guy who, I, I've spent a lot of time around a lot of quarterback coaches from around the country. And Fisher is one of the few guys that I think actually can make a guy a better thrower because he understands the biomechanics of, of throwing. He's, he has a specific set of drills that I by and large agree with in terms of the biomechanics of what they produce and what they cause a quarterback to do in the throwing motion. And he spends a lot of time in spring and in fall camp and all of this, making a guy's motion better. He's one, he, and a lot of, a lot of coaches don't even believe you can do it with a kid that old. Basically, once a kid's that old, well, he's going to throw the way he's going to throw. You can teach a, you know, six, seven year old, eight year old, 10 year old how to throw a little bit better. But at a certain point, the way you throw is just, you know, it's muscle memory and it's, you know, it's easier to change a golf swing. And, it, and it's true in many ways. It's, it's, it's very much like changing a golf swing. I mean, good luck. It takes a lot of reps, takes a lot of the proper drills to actually learn to do it. But Fisher is one of the few guys that believes that you can change not just how a guy stands in the pocket in terms of his footwork and all that, but that you can actually change release point. You can change how the ball comes off the hand and get better on that. And we saw that with EJ Manuel. EJ Manuel got better as a thrower in his time at Florida State, and he would have been even better had he not missed two springs with injury. Because that's one of the things I talked about, talked to Fisher about in 2009 when when EJ was was a young guy. He basically said, "Look, we've got him on a plan. We're going to go step one." And he he took me through the steps. You know, step one, step two, step three, step four. This spring, we're going to be working on this. This spring, the next spring, we'll have that down. So we're going to be working on this and we're going to work our way forward because, you know, these are the flaws that he's got as a thrower and we're going to work, work toward it, but you can't work on more than one thing at a time in this regard. So you just got to fix what you can fix first, take the first priority, fix that, and then move on. Well, EJ missed two of those springs. So they really only got to step two, two and a half. So, but Jimbo is really good at that. And when Blackman came in as a true freshman. He actually improved over the course of the year. He improved not only in terms of what he was doing in the quarter as a quarterback and got comfortable and Fisher's offense is so quarterback friendly. I mean, it is super quarterback friendly. There's just so much, so much there for a quarterback to, to, to benefit from uh, make, his offense is going to make quarterback look better than he is. It's just the way it is. And then you add that to being a, a really technical mechanical guy and, and a guy that can get his quarterbacks to throw it a little better. 
and Blackman got better over the course of that year. Then Jimbo left and Walt Bell came in and I've talked to Walt Bell about Walt, about what Bell believes as a, as a quarterback coach. And Bell is one of those quarterback coaches. And this is actually probably the the majority I'm in the minority and I'm, I'm with Fisher on this, but the majority of quarterback coaches basically believe that by the time you get to a kid who's in his late teens and all that, really all you can do is work on footwork. It's a waste of time to try to work on anything above the shoulders in terms of throwing motion. You, you can't, you can't really fix that. So all you can really do is make sure that a kid's standing in the pocket the right way, make sure that the footwork is synced up with the routes properly and make sure that, you know, you, you're keeping a stable base and that's all, that's, that's what you can do. And that's what Walt Bell worked with him on. And last year, even though he did play decent against NC state and that was a bad NC state defense, even though he did light them up, I felt like he was a little bit, he had regressed a little bit in terms of his throwing motion last year. And I know DeAndre Francois regressed a lot last year under Walt Bell as a quarterback coach. Because just mechanically, they didn't, they, they, they didn't. And I bro- I've broken this down on the, on the video, uh, on my video breakdowns uh, over at Patreon. Um, I have, uh, and, and I did this last year talking about what was wrong with, with Francois's motion. And I've done a little bit of that this year with, with uh, Blackman's and in some cases, it's actually a lot of the same mistakes you're seeing. You're not getting the full foot in the back in, in, uh, in the ground in the back and you're getting pivoting and spinning from the hips all the way up through the upper body. You're not de- you're not actually developing torque and you're throwing around your body and you're pulling through with your arm instead of creating torque and tension through the instep all the way up through the hip girdle. And you don't even have to have your feet planted correctly. The guy to watch for this, there are two guys in the NFL that you can watch that do this right mechanically. One is Aaron Rodgers and the other is Patrick Mahomes. They do it better than anybody else. They can have their feet in any angle, but watch how they, how they develop torque, how they, they create torque from the front hip through the, through the back of the rib cage. They create that torque and then they don't throw from the arm. The arm just whips through and down the line, not down. They're not pulling down on the ball. They're just letting the arm whip through like the end of a bull whip down the line. And then that extends out, not down, and they they're able to create a tremendous amount of torque and power through that uh, through that motion. It's like cracking a whip, and by the time that ball comes off the hand, it's coming off a lot faster, and it's going to come off more accurately because it's a much more compact and consistent movement. And you're using the big muscles to do it, and then you're just controlling location and velocity with your fingers. So that is a uh, and and. That's something that if you know what you're doing as a quarterback mechanics guy, you can produce that. Now, some of these guys that quarterback mechanics, some of the quarterbacks mechanics guys out there, I think are selling snake oil. I mean, you get George Whitfield. I don't think George Whitfield is, is any good. I think George Whitfield actually made, made Jameis Winston's release worse. Jameis's release since he's been in the NFL is different than what it was in 2013 and 2014. They de-baseballified it and they made a mistake. He's not as accurate now as he was in, in college because his release got screwed up a little bit by working with Whitfield. What he was doing with Jimbo was working throwing wise. And it's because Jimbo knows the biomechanics better than Whitfield does. But anyway, Bell under Bell, they regressed. And then I haven't talked really that much with Kendall Bryles about how he handles quarterback mechanics. I mean, I know some of it. I, I haven't, I haven't gone in depth with him. I'll just say that. 
Uh, there's been a little a little bit of of this, and I know his I know what he does drill wise and all that. And the thing is, he's also not a big mechanics guy like Jimbo. Another guy that I've talked to that I think is pretty similar to Kendall in terms of approach is actually UNC's quarterback coach Phil Longo. Phil Longo is of the view. I asked him, "What what what what's your, are you one of those guys that's a footwork guy? Are you a you know you can actually train the, the throwing motion guy? What do you do to make your guys better throwers and you know to help improve accuracy or velocity? Do you do anything?" And he just said to me, he said, "I recruit throwers. There's not enough time in the week." We got we to work on our offense. We got to work on where you're going to throw. We got to work on making sure that stuff's done. I don't have time to, make, to try to Im- improve a guy's throwing motion or to make him a better thrower or whatever. If the guy can't make the throws in my offense, I got to find another guy. And that's a perfectly reasonable approach. And when you got a kid like Sam Howell as a, as a freshman, you got a guy that can make the throws in your offense. All you have to do is, is just maintain certain relatively simple drills to make sure that he maintained to, to its maintenance. You're not having to improve anything. He's naturally, a, he's coming out a, a, a finished product in that regard. But if you get a kid like Blackman and then you do that, well, a lot of old bad habits are going to come back and you're going to get regression as a thrower. You're going to get some of those things that, that, that are going to be an issue in terms of mechanics. And my suspicion is that that's kind of what's happened. That, that's my read on, on the situation. And, and it's one of the things that, again, if you give Bryles a quarterback who's a natural thrower, who can actually make the throws and he doesn't have to really tear down and completely rebuild his throwing motion, which he's just not, that's not what he does. If you're going to give him one of those guys, he's going to light it up because they are scheming all sorts of guys open. The guys are, guys are running free in what they're calling right now. And quarterbacks are just missing them. I mean, they're missing multiple touchdowns per game, either by just throwing behind a guy or just totally skipping a ball to him or throwing it over his head or just not seeing him. But if you give Bryles, I think, you know, it's a similar situation with Longo. If you give Bryles a guy that can make the throws in his offense, you're going to see, you know, again, like like with Jimbo, Bryles' offense is real quarterback friendly. You can put up some silly numbers in that offense. But he's not gonna he's not gonna make you into he's not gonna mold you into you know an NFL thrower if you are a raw kid. So you know a guy like uh, a, a guy like Sims who's a more natural thrower, a guy who who's got a more natural motion and isn't as raw as as Blackman. I think he could come in and, and really succeed. But again, it's not this not the right situation for Blackman. And then you combine that with the final factor. Blackman is a guy who. He got beat up as a freshman, not as bad as, you know, some might have suggested. But then he's been beat up also this year, and that starts to eventually you start to get gun shy as a thrower and you start to that's going to further compound any mechanical flaws that you have. So if you've got a tendency to spin or spin out and not transfer your weight properly through your through your hips and all that, and you're used to getting pressure in your face, well, you're going to tend even more to do that. You're not going to get, you're not going to transfer your weight. And, and that's the stuff we're seeing. So I think that's the biggest reason. It's a, it's a confluence of factors from three coaches in three years, all with, th- with different ap- approaches and different offenses. He's never gotten comfortable getting absolutely blasted, getting hit over and over and over again, and then being, being really raw and, really not working with 
one of those guru types that that is going to basically help build him up as a thrower in in that regard. So I think that's what you're looking at. All right. Next question. Do we do you expect to see more wild cam the rest of the year against Miami? Were you uh, are you surprised we have not seen this earlier in the year? Uh, yeah, already addressed that. I think we're going to see more wild cam the rest of the year. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of it against Miami. And am I surprised we didn't see this earlier in the year? Not really. Not really. Um, partly because, again, Akers isn't a natural quarterback. And there are certain things that if you if you got a quarterback on the field in Bryles' offense that can actually make those throws and all that, you're better off. I think this is really one of those situations where they're, they're throwing their hands up in the air and going, look, this is, all we, this is what we got left. This is not a situation where it's like, okay, this is an additive. This is a situation where... They're doing what I was saying a couple weeks ago. Like, look, we can't trust the quarterbacks to do anything. So we got to find a way to run it. <laughs> so basically, this is one of those situations where they've gotten into the gotten to the gotten to the point where they've gotten frustrated enough that they're they're searching for other stuff that's going to work. And they were so successful early in the year offensively. I mean, when you're a top 15 offense in terms of efficiency, you're not searching for that stuff. But when they started to really struggle, that's when we started to see this. And that's not a surprise. All right, next question. I know this is not set in stone, but do you think Levitt would be on the staff with Barnett as a co-defensive coordinator? I doubt Levitt would accept that. It seems like there's always a, a chemistry issue here, uh, with, or chemistry issues there with a, with a co-defensive coordinator. Who would call the defense, Barnett or Levitt? Actually, not only do I think Levitt would be on the staff with Barnett as co-defense coordinator, I think that's what we're going to see next year. I don't think they're going to fire Barnett. I think what we're going to see is we're going to see restructuring of the staff where Jim Levitt comes on as the linebackers coach and co-defensive coordinator with Harlan Barnett, and you're going to bring, they're going to bring a cornerbacks coach in as well. That's what I'm expecting. Now, I don't have that confirmed from any clear source on that. That's, that's what I expect, reading what I have heard and all of that, putting all that together and kind of putting the pieces together, but that's what I expect. And Barnett is one of those guys that's so easy to get along with. You guys don't realize what a, a great dude Harlan Barnett is. But that's a dude that can work, like, he could probably work with anybody. And you know, that guy doesn't, have, like, no ego. He's just going to do his job. He's going to do the best he can. He's going to develop his guys. I got a ton of respect for Harlan Barnett. And Jim Levitt, is also a guy that he he's he he's an alpha but he's also going to come in and he he knows how to work with those guys so i think long term i think odds are next year we're going to see jim levitt on the staff with harlan barnett and with a new cornerbacks coach and you'll see two guys coach in the secondary and then you'll see some reshuffling of the defensive staff exactly how that's going to get worked out with the rest of them to make room for two new coaches that's going to mean one's going to rotate off exactly who that's going to be well you know you can read you can figure that out, but I, I don't know exactly who it's going to be. And, you know, they'll, they'll figure, they'll figure it out. All right. Before I uh, finish these questions, I want to thank Garage Ra Makeovers. They are the top rated garage remodeling company in South Florida, according to Home Advisor and Angie's List. They serve all of Palm Beach and Broward County. If you need any work done in your garage, they're the people to do it. Give them a call at Garage Makeovers. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered podcast. All right. Final couple questions. Wow, Jordan Young looked really good with that catch. How does he compare to Warren Thompson? Good question. Well, number one is Warren Thompson is not on the field right now, partly because of some, uh, there, there's some personal issues there. 
uh, and they're 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 addressing some stuff, and you know that that that'll be taken care of. But uh, so from what I understand, the, the the there are a couple differences. One is Jordan Jordan Young has significantly better hands than Warren Thompson. Thompson's one of those guys. Uh, kind of a Keith Gavinish in in terms of uh, of inconsistency hand wise. Now he'll make some more of the big play catches than what Gavin has. Gavin's frustrating because he'll be in position to make that big play catch and normally won't make the big play catch, though he'll oftentimes catch the easy stuff. Thompson, in some cases, will do do the opposite. He'll go up and make the circus catch, and then it's a lot of the easy ones. He'll have concentration drops go through his hands and become an interception and some of this other stuff. But Thompson's also a little bit more polished route runner at this point than Jordan Young. He's, you know, he, he's actually a pretty mature and relatively explosive for his size route runner. Uh, he, he's, he can create space as a route runner. And if he, if he was a little bit more reliable as a catcher, he'd have played earlier this year. Jordan Young is the more explosive player vertically. He is a track guy. He is fast. He can go up and, and moss guys like you saw. He's going to be the guy. Both guys can go up and get it. But if, you, if you're going to get a guy down vertical on the vertical stuff, it's going to be Jordan Young that I, I'm, going to, I'm going to trust. So, and also in terms of, of, of from what I understand, their, their route strengths, I'm wanting Jordan Young on the dig route because of how just naturally he catches the football. He's a hands catcher, runs right through it, get that track speed. I want him on my vertical routes, you know, the goes and that sort of thing where he can just go up over top of guys and do the abusement park thing. Uh, he's a little bit more of an explosive guy with the ball in his hands. But on some other stuff, a lot of the intermediate stuff, the, 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 the little shallows, the uh, curls and things like that, Thompson has a better knack of running some of those routes and is going to get a little bit more space. I'm expect I'm going to expect more from him there, and also he's a really good post route runner. So if you want a, if you want a guy to beat somebody on a post, and we saw this earlier in the year, he did it once. He's really natural at the post. Uh, that that was confirmed from one of my sources, and he showed it in that earlier game. He the, the, if you want a guy to run the post on the team, he's the guy. So that's a little bit of, of how they compare. And I think Thompson is just a little thicker and, and just a little more physical in that regard. Uh, but young is going to be a guy that I think is going to be, and we talked about this in the preseason, the hype was a year ahead for them, but both young and Thompson uh, should be really, really good next year. And, and, and they're going to have a chance to, to be explosive players in this offense. All right, final question. And this one's a doozy because it comes on the heels of, uh, what's going on in the NCAA? NCAA announced today that, and this is a little bit of um, uh, of there's a little bit of complexity here because of the wording, but they announced today that they're going to basically allow athletes to be compensated for their names, images, and likenesses in the college model, which those are weasel words that. Mm, you know what exactly that means is a little unclear because that doesn't mean we're just going to open it up and let it go full Olympic model. Although that's what I would like to see. And I think long-term that's inevitable, but 
they've they, they've said we're going to be open. Athletes are going to be allowed to be compensated for their names, images, and likenesses, and they'll try to put in some sort of management system to try to avoid how that you know could become the wild west or whatever. You know, the NCAA does what they do. So I've gotten a number of questions about this. Uh, one I think was was. Uh, well put. And so I'm just going to go ahead and address that. Would you be willing to spend a few minutes on the upcoming pod, breaking this down, specifically explaining how this will not be a massive advantage for the schools with the biggest, wealthiest donor base? I'm mostly concerned about the competition and recruiting. Well, first and foremost, I, I, I want to say it is going to advantage any school that has big and wealthy donor bases. I mean, if you've got a bunch of people with money to burn, that want to throw money at players. And if they're able to make money on their, uh, in terms of, in exchange for, uh, uh, for name likeness, that sort of thing. And you, they can sell autographs and all that. These wealthy donors can start to flex their muscle a little bit more above the table and, and, and bring guys in that way. Here's the thing though. That's going to advantage who, right? That's going to advantage your Alabama's, your Georgia's, your Texas type programs, Texas A&M, LSU, wait a second, Ohio State, huh. So basically, all of the programs that are getting all the good players now are going to be advantaged. And that's because those programs that have the biggest and wealthiest donor bases and have these really passionate uh billionaire or, or multi-millionaire donors who want to support their teams, they're already funneling this money to, to, to student athletes. And it's already happening. It's just happening under the table and behind the scenes. So what this does is it brings it into the light. And if anything, this allows, in certain cases, some businesses to get involved that are not necessarily mega boosters. This allows, you know, your local restaurants to give players in theory. I mean, we don't know exactly how they're how they're planning on doing this. But I mean, I can envision a situation where basically in exchange for a signed picture on the wall, players get free food at Guthrie's or get free food at whatever restaurant wants to give them free food. And no problem. They're already getting free food at a lot of these places. But now it can actually be overt and you put the put the sign, you know, sign picture on the wall and they walk in and they get there and they don't have to worry about, well, if you get busted for this, then you have to pretend that you were shoplifting or whatever, right? That's, that's really the difference on that front. Now, yeah, there's definitely, if, if you let this go full Olympic model, then maybe Phil Knight wants to pay a kid, uh, you know, $2 million to come to, to come to Oregon. Thing is, Phil Knight at Nike doesn't want to get all of the other Nike schools ticked off that he's favoring one school, one Nike school to that degree. So it's not in his interest to do that, though he I'm sure would funnel some money. But you, you know, there the, the market starts to stabilize again for which players have what talent. And and again, the market develops and you know, there's already a market. There's already prices that are established behind the scenes for which kids are worth what. Now, where this does change things is there are some schools where they've got wealthy donor bases that are not as involved in some of this. So in Alabama, if you're a wealthy, wealthy donor who really wants your school to win, you, the culture is such that you're, you're going you're gonna to find the way to make sure that you get this stuff to the bag man. 
at a number of other places, let's just imagine like Stanford or Northwestern or someplace with really wealthy, wealthy donors that are maybe, you know, it's a, it's a little bit different culturally. They, they're not even thinking about doing the whole behind the scenes bagman thing. I'm not suggesting that those programs don't just, just so you know, but some of the, some of the big money, money players there might say, you know, I actually, I want, I want a couple extra guys to come to my school and I can outbid just about anybody on the planet because I own Google, (laughs) you know, these sorts of things. And, um, so, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to set up a little fund so that they can be sponsored. They can be sponsored by, you know, they can be, uh, endorsers for Google and get a little bit extra money there. And yeah, they can toss it, but they're still not going to try to break the bank with that. But that does bring in some additional potential players in terms of people who could afford some of the stuff that um, might actually lead to a little bit more parity in theory. So we'll see how all this goes. I don't think really in terms of of parity, it changes a whole lot because there's not much parity in, in college football and basketball to begin with. The best handful or two of of top programs are already getting the top players. I mean, all of the best players are going to like 10 programs in football and like five or six programs in basketball. So what are you going to like? Oh, are you worried that now that they're now that you've got these big donors that could come in, the, the, the best players might all go to the same school. It's already happening. The difference is that you can bring this above board and, and actually by opening the door to a real market rather than a black market, some of the other schools that might not be able to get involved with this to the same degree. Local businesses and things like that can get involved and, you know, potentially have some impact there. So I'm curious to see what the NCAA actually does here, how they try to manage limitations on this and doing all that they're going to try to do to, to, uh, to put a lid on it. But I do think it's a, you know, clearly a step that needs to be taken. It's a positive step for, for uh, those involved in the sport. And I think it's something that uh, I, I'm just looking forward to seeing what what actually happens. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us here on the podcast. Now, before we get out of here, I want to thank those sponsors over at Patreon. Above the Bleach Numbers level, that's Keith Cheney, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Andrew Garrett, Bert Bertoldi, and Brian Leninger. Thanks to all of you guys, especially for your support. And thanks to everybody else who is uh, a supporter there. And of course, make sure to catch our next podcast, which is going to be the Miami preview. I'm Jason Staples, and this has been the Unconquered Podcast, brought to you by EPR Creations, Lewis Marquez of Keller Williams in Jacksonville, and Garage Makeovers in Broward and Palm Beach County. Thanks for listening. I made this. <laughs>